Why Judges? Now, um, if we're going to look at the book of Judges for a few minutes this morning, uh, we can't just look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Otherwise, we come away with this very positive view of Judges. And uh, it begins well with Othniel. He's the uh, prototype because he uh, has this pattern displayed in this passage of Scripture that you find throughout the book of Judges. And that pattern is this, that the uh, people of Israel, the children of Israel, sin and they follow after other gods. And by the way, uh, in, order, in order to understand the book of Judges, you have to understand the book of Deuteronomy. Because they were supposed to drive out, dispossess, exterminate the Canaanites, according to Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. And now, I can't explain uh, the problem of evil associated with the extermination of the Canaanites. But you know what? When God says it's time for a particular nation to be brought down because of their uh, reprehensible idolatry, and their oppression and the violence associated with God's people with regard to the Canaanites. God says, I'm tired of it. So I want you to exterminate every man, woman, child, every sheep, cattle, all of them. And I'm giving you this land positively to possess. So that's the reason for and where we come to in the book of Judges. Chapter 1 reminds us of Joshua, who was supposed to lead them into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy, partially, is that handing over of leadership. And so Joshua, as the valiant leader that he was, he begins, but he's not able to exterminate or dispossess all of the nations in Canaan. So what happens is, the Israelites settle in. And at the end of chapter 1 of Judges, Joshua dies. And here's what I mean by they settled in. They settled in and they followed the pattern of the other nations surrounding them. They embraced their gods as their own. And so the book of Judges is to remind, first of all, that God is faithful even when people are not. That's the first theme in this book. It's not about the judges, necessarily. Yes, they are the deliverers. But uh, the first couple that, like I said, are very positive. By the end of uh, the book of Judges, we have Samuel. I mean, uh, Samson, not Samuel. Samson. And if you, I know Hebrews says that he's in the Hall of Faith. You know, he's in Faith's Hall of Fame. Both Jephthah and Samson. But I'm telling you, Samson's character was self-willed to the very end of his life. He was a womanizer. He violated the law. He took a Nazarite vow. His parents had consecrated him to God. That's what a Nazarite vow was. And so long hair was associated as a symbol that he's supposed to be God's man as a judge. And yet throughout his life, he was willful, rebellious, and refused to do what God wanted him to do. Here's one of the uh, depictions of Samson. So why am I bringing up Samson? Because we're dealing with Othniel. 
What I'm saying is this, is that it begins well, but it ends with a civil war and 45,000 Benjamites, the other tribes of Israel, wipe out 45,000 Benjamites, almost wipe out the entire tribe. And so another prominent theme is leadership. In fact, in the middle of Judges, there's this guy named another judge, Abimelech, which means uh, God is my king. The Lord is my king. So there's this uh, introduction of kingship. Well, that goes back to Deuteronomy 2. If you look at Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, um, Moses reminds the people of God that when they ask for a king, here's what you should have as a king. He should read the law on a regular basis so that he is reminded of who I am and that he'll follow me and he'll follow the statutes and the commandments of the Old Testament law, those stipulations related to the covenant. But if he doesn't do that and he takes up horses, which is military might, and he overburdens people with taxes, so you know we can we can relate to that, right? Because we have we've had uh, administrative leaders and presidents that like to tax us. This is what the king would be like. So there's this cry for leadership. That's the other thing, for good quality leadership. So when you come to chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, just remember the context. There's this idea of sin, following after their gods, oppression, then this cry out of distress by the people of God, and God's response by sending a deliverer. But by the end of Judges, like in Samson's life, the people aren't even asking for a deliverer. God just sends Samson. And he taunts the people of God, when they cry out in distress. They're not crying out in repentance. They're, they're not crying out to uh, plea as a prayer to God to deliver. That's not it. It's a cry of distress because of the violent oppression of the Canaanites, the Midianites and Gideon, for example, in chapter 6, that are overrunning the country. So these uh, territorial leaders arise, God um, causes them to arise, and they lead. But they're not perfect. They have flaws. Um, Othniel is one of the exceptions. So uh, since I've given you a kind of a general overview of Judges, let's look at Othniel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. There's the first sign of the pattern that I mentioned. They forgot the Lord. That, it's not a problem with memory either. It's not, it's not as though, oh, gee, I forgot about God. No, it's they rejected, repudiated God. That's what the word forget means. They refused to remember God in what they did. They lived as though God did not exist. Much like our day to day. People walk around in society the Bible of the New Testament characterizes them as spiritually dead. It doesn't mean that they don't have life, but they don't have this principle of eternal life. And so they live as though God does not exist. And they do whatever's right in their own eyes, which is exactly the pattern of the people of God. 
And that's because the people of God had settled in to their culture. And they embraced and adapted the culture. Now, this is why Judges is so important. Because I would suggest that some within the church, the God's people, the New Testament believers, have settled in to the culture. And they've just become comfortable. And so they've embraced the immorality associated with it. You know that that, that most uh, surveys given today uh, have this idea with regard to uh, God's people, Christians? Most Christians are acceptable of the homosexual lifestyle. They have friends, they have family that are homosexuals, and we should love them. We should show the love of Christ to them. But that doesn't mean we tolerate, as James has said in the past, this aberrant, this aberrant lifestyle that's condemned in the Old Testament and the New. Read Romans 1 and 2. It's the devolution of society, according to Paul. It's the last vestige of morality when judgment comes upon God. By the way, we've already been under God's judgment. I don't know if you know that. It says that the wrath of God is being poured out continually in chapter 1, 18 and following on us. So we're already under the judgment of God. Here's the good news. We still have grace to walk within an evil, adulterous, sinful generation. But some of us have embraced the attitude and lifestyle of God's people. In chapter 3, verse 7. By the way, Othniel is a Gentile. He's from the Kenizzites. If you know the 12 tribes of Israel, there were no Kenizzites. He's the nephew of Caleb, which means that Caleb was a Gentile too. So every once in a while in the Old Testament, here's what God does. He uh, puts in Gentiles to remind them that there's going to be this expansion of God's people beyond ethnic Israel. I just find it very interesting that he does that. In the New Testament, he does that in Ephesians 2. He brings the two that were alienated, separated from each other, Jew and Gentile, in Christ, unites them. So enemies become friends. So back to Judges. So the Israelites do what's evil in God's sight. They forget God, their Lord, and they worship the Baals and the Asherahs. Now you remember the story of Elijah. In Elijah, he faces the uh, 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And so who is this Baal? Why were the uh, prophets dancing around, cutting themselves, uh, trying to gain uh, Baal's attention? It's because he was uh, considered a storm god. And the storm god that would uh, rain on their crops or cause the rain to fall so that their crops would be abundant and fruitful. But like most of the gods of the ancient Near East, the false gods, the the idols that the uh, Israelites now have embraced in Judges, they're capricious. That is, they're self-willed. They're angry at a moment. They're angry at a moment. And so uh, you have other gods like Moloch who uh, it requires child sacrifice, which Yahweh never condoned. 
because he's gracious, just like he is in the New Testament. There's no distinction between God in the Old Testament, who's gracious, and God in the New Testament, who's gracious and faithful. But anyway, so this storm god Baal, the uh, prophets of of uh, Baal are cutting themselves, dancing in a frenzy all day long. You know the story well. Yahweh's victorious. Elijah builds an altar at the end of the day. He has a moat placed around the altar filled with water. He douses it with water and God consumes it by fire in a moment. And the uh, Baal prophets are defeated and the Israelites pursue them. But what were they trying to do when they're dancing in a frenzy and cutting themselves? They're trying to resurrect their God. That's why Elijah says, Hey, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe if you, if you holler a little louder, He can hear you. So that's what they were trying to do, is resurrect their dead God. That's the kind of... Uh, Religious thought that was going on in the ancient Near East. So there's Baal. And then there's the Asherah. Uh, the Asherah was a female goddess who was the cohort of this other god, El. But apparently in Judges, she has become a cohort with Baal. That's what we would call, uh, by example, a wife to Baal. So that's what they were doing. So in these Asherahs had these gigantic poles. Later on in uh, Genesis, in Judges chapter 6, you have Gideon who's called to go to the high places. That's where they would place these places of false worship, these altars, and tear down the Baal altars and the poles related to the Asherahs. Places of worship. That's the kind of activity that the deliverers are called to do. So, Two things related to this pattern. They've done what's evil in the Lord's sight. God's people have the Israelites. They forgot the Lord. And they worship these Baals and Asherahs. And then the Lord's anger, in other words, God is infuriated with His people. His anger burns against them. And He sold them. This is, remember, remember what happened in uh, the Exodus? They were slaves, right? For 430 years, 400 to 430 years, there's two different accounts, so one's 400, one's 430, around about 430 years. And God delivers them out of slavery. So now, in ironic reversal, Yahweh's selling them to the oppressor. That's what's going on here. So he sold them to Kushan Rishathaim. Say that three times fast and that will really impress your friends. It means, Kushan is the name, and he is the uh, doubly evil person. We don't know historically who this guy is, but he was evil. And he oppressed for eight years these people, according to verse 8. And he's the king of Aram, Naharaim, which is in Syria. So there's a little bit of geography there. 
And here's the response. The Israelites cried out. That's the uh, next element. So you have sin, idolatry, uh, doing what's evil in their own eyes, against God. And then there's this oppressor. And then they cry out in distress because of the uh, oppression of the enemy. And then God answers their prayer or their distress. Not really a prayer. Their plea. And so he raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz. Your Bibles may say Caleb's youngest brother, but Kenaz is probably Caleb's youngest brother, so that would mean that Othniel is his nephew. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. That's all well and good. The Spirit of God comes, empowers the uh, judge to do exactly what he's supposed to do, and what does he do? He gets rid of the oppressor. So there's this deliverance that takes place in the context. June the 18th, 1940. The Battle of France had just occurred. And uh, Winston Churchill, who for two wars, World War I, he was a... uh, military leader, and became a politician, and was instrumental in the Great War. That's what they call the Great War. When you go to New York City, most of the monuments and everything associated with uh, war is related to the Great War, World War I. We normally think of, right, World War II. But World War I was the Great War. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Well, of course... The same nation, Germany, that was involved in World War I had begun to build up armaments. And by 1940, they had conquered. France had fallen. And so Winston Churchill, who's now the uh, prime minister of the country of England, Great Britain, he says these words because he anticipates the Battle of Britain that's about to occur. What General Wigong calls the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Notice his attitude. He thinks that this world war is for the battle of Christian civilization as he knows it. Why? Because in my view, he's one of those leaders that God raises up at a certain particular time. Here's what he says. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows what he has to break us in this island or lose the war. In other words, Hitler's the one that he knows that if he can break Great Britain, then he can take the rest of Europe. And and France has already fallen. If we stand up to him, says Churchill, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad and sunlit uplands. This imagery of victory and prosperity. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States and all that we have known or cared for. Notice that in 1940, where's the United States? They're not in the war. They don't want to be involved. 
If we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, and all that we have known or cared for will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister by the lights of perverted science. This mechanistic buildup of armaments under Hitler. That's what he's referring to. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. And you know what? If you know your history, Germany never conquered Great Britain. And as a result, after December, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor, the United States awoke, got involved. But the attitude of the leadership of the United States generally and of Winston Churchill whether they were Christian or not, genuine believers, was this. God intervened. Why do I bring that up? Because last week in Houston, when, every, when, when it seemed as though insanity was going awry, going everywhere, and uh, I picked up some uh, news from WAI, 1200 radio in San Antonio. That's I'm from San Antonio. It's like you could when I was a kid, you could listen to it if you're driving through Ohio because it was you know 50,000 watts of clear channel. So uh, the younger generation, you may not understand what I'm talking about here, but it was pretty cool because you could pick it up clear as a bell. Unless you got in the mountains, then it was a little problem. But so here's what they said about that. Here's what the secular media does with things. They said, you know, it was because of the ineptitude of the Houston mayor. She let the enemy, her opponents, shape the issue. You know, the issue was over, over this equality ordinance, right? And so uh, that ordinance did not pass. Hallelujah. And that's the secular media's shape of things. That, that's how they paint the picture. But there's another picture involved. There were some Houston pastors and some of God's people that got on their knees and started praying. And remember, this is during the time when their sermons are being subpoenaed by the mayor. Well, that's always a good thing when that happens because what God does is He uses those kind of things. And uh, God's people got involved in the political process and other people that are not believers, and they said, you know, this is wrong. And so they voted down that ordinance. Amazing thing. Largest city in Texas. But two years ago, passed without a hitch. Same ordinance in San Antonio. Probably never heard of that, did you? That didn't get a lot of publicity. That's why we have to pay attention as God's people. We need to be involved in what's going on. These leaders are local leaders. They don't necessarily represent all of Israel. Though in God's mind, these local leaders represent what God wants to do for His people. 
But as I mentioned, the book of Judges is about defending the character of God. That God's faithful when His people are not. So here's my question. Are you settling down in the culture? Are you getting acclimated to everything? Has it become comfortable? So that you no longer experience persecution? So that the gospel is just another idea out there, a message that is alongside others? This is why the book of Judges is so important. Notice what happens. This Kushan Rishathaim, whoever he is, king of Aram, one of these days we'll find some archaeological evidence and I'll be able to tell you, hey, I don't know who this guy, I know who this guy is now. I don't know who he is right now. All I know is this. He's oppressed them for eight years and guess what God does? To show he's faithful, he raises up this great leader. And for 40 years, which is generally a generation in the Old Testament, they have rest. That word rest means solitude and stability. So they're not having their territorial borders overrun by the enemy. And I'd love to say that's the end of the story in Judges, but it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is this. That by the time you get to the book of Judges, there's these uh, precursors, there's these depictions, these hints at this, we need an ideal leader. Who is this leader? We need a king. So if you read through the rest of the, what we call Deuteronomic history, that's Joshua to Second Kings. There's this uh, promise of a king. So you think it might be David, right? Maybe it's Solomon. We kind of know, right, in this. We're insiders. We know the answer to the question, who's the king that's ideal? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is depicted as the great priest and king, the final fulfillment, the final sacrifice. He fulfills the sacrificial system. He fulfills a priesthood because he's after the pattern of the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews 7.3. That means he's eternal. There's no beginning or end to this mysterious figure that is only mentioned once in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. And yet the writer of Hebrews elaborates for several chapters on this priest-king, Jesus. So we come to, uh, this is following the uh, so-called heroes, heroes of faith, to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it's a call to endurance. Therefore, since we all ha- also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's the people that are mentioned in chapter 11. That's the great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares us. 
Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before Him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. So judges cries for this ideal king. And even in, even today in Israel, that king, when they look back in their history, the golden age of Israel is under David. The united monarchy. But David is not the man. And it's not Solomon. It's not even Hezekiah in the divided kingdom. It's not Jos- good king Josiah. There was two. One not so good. One good. They all point to the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that is the absolute ideal and fulfillment of what God promised, even in illusion in Judges. So the message for us today is this. We should continue to be faithful to God regardless of how the culture changes, of whatever becomes right in the culture's sight. Isaiah calls it this way. If they call uh, good evil and evil good, God's people must not listen to that message. Regardless of how popular it becomes. You know, what, I, what I've said this morning may one day very well be, I'll be arrested or I'll have to pay a fine. Because that's what happens in Canada. If you want to broach the, some of these hot potato topics like homosexuality, same-sex marriage, that kind of thing. The other thing that we can take away from this is that... Uh, in the context of chapter 3, marital fidelity is very important to God. If, uh, if you read in uh, earlier in chapter 3, you would know that they had intermarried with the Canaanites. Not, not just the fact that they followed their gods, but they intermarried with them. So they had just really settled in. So in a spiritual sense, what I'm urging us to do is to continue to remain faithful to God by not embracing what's popular and pagan. That's normally what happens. And the other thing is to uh, share the gospel. Not just stand up for politics, It's important that we be involved in our local elections. That's how Houston overturned this ordinance. But it's also important to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those we come in contact. Why? Because it's the great commission, not the great omission. Right? If we remain silent, then someone will not hear the gospel.
Whoever that someone is. Well, if I share the gospel with my friends, the good news about Jesus, the fact that he died in my place, that he was, he took the penalty of death for me. My penal substitute. And he turned God's wrath against me and against you and poured it out on his son. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead and he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is a picture of Hebrews chapter 12, by the way. Otherwise, if uh, we live just like everybody else does to please ourselves, then what do you think will happen? What's happening now? And in England, you know, I mentioned Winston Churchill. Since World War II, Less than 3% attend church of any kind. I'm not talking about an evangelical, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. Of any church. And they have a, nation, a national church. The Anglican church. But very few attend. And therefore, very few are involved in sharing the gospel, living the gospel. And this, so this is an example of Othniel here. He is an example of a prototype of a leader, but he's not the guy to follow. He's pointing to somebody else. And these other judges, they're pointing to somebody else. And uh, the pattern of judges, again, is this downturn. So we're facing the same thing in our nation. We're seeing this downturn, this downward spiral, but every once in a while, God shows up and reminds us that He's still God. We are not, thankfully. And He reminds us this, that we should be involved, not only in our society, but in Involved with the lives of our friends. My friends won't like me if I share the gospel, if I stand up for my faith. Well, you know what? You think Jesus is going to, he stood up for you? So who's more important? It's, it's one thing to say, well, you know, I believe that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? He's boss! He rules over every single area of my life. And so when I fail to relinquish my self-will to His, then how do you think I'm influencing anybody? I'm not. So here's my encouragement to you. If you've been uh, living in the culture, being of the world and not in the world, there's a difference there. You're not imbibing, embracing the culture. But you're trying to be salt and light. Good. But if you're doing the other, the opposite of that, think of the ramifications. You're doing the same thing that the people of God did in the Old Testament. 
If you've done that, here's the good news. God's gracious. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to turn from it. And I don't mean like uh, turn like this. You know, and just have the chain, the ball and chain still on your leg. But remove it completely. And renounce it. And turn to Christ in faith. That's what you do as a believer. If you're not a believer and you say, I don't even know what the world you're talking about. Here's the, the fact. Jesus died for you. He died in your place. You simply need to acknowledge that and turn to Him in faith. And receive Him by faith. And He welcomes you into the kingdom immediately. Will you do that today? Paul and the worship team are going to come forward now. We're going to have a time of invitation. And you can do business with God this morning. And there's no protocol. I mean, you can just come right now. You don't have to wait. Matt's going to be here at the front to pray with you. If you have a need this morning, whatever it is. But the greatest need is this. To follow Jesus 100%, wholeheartedly, resolutely, without reservation, and He will give you what you need to go in, go forward in life.